281 million lost people in North America. And so we, along with our partners at the Southern Baptist Convention, other churches just like ours, will in the month of March here leading into Easter do two things. Number one, we will pray for our North American missionaries. At the information desk, there is a prayer guide that we're going to pray through as a church this week. Uh, these specific prayer requests are also going to be posted every day, starting today, to our social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, so you can find them there. But if you'll pick one of these up at the information uh, table, it'll tell you how you can pray this week for church planters and North American missionaries who we support through the North American Mission Board. The North American Mission Board was instrumental in our church a few years ago, planting Redemption Heights Church in uh, Philadelphia. We could not have done that without the financial support, the training, the logistical support that came through NAM, through the North American Mission Board. And so we're so grateful for them, and we're grateful for the opportunity to be, to be able to pray for not just church planters like Mark and James, uh, but to pray for church planters that we will never meet and missionaries here in North America that we will never meet. Also this month, we are taking up what is known, I referred to it in the video, as the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering. Uh, Annie Armstrong, decades ago, began uh, raising money for church plants and mission work right here in North America. Uh, later, they named this offering after her. And every year, our church uh, supports the work of churches that we will never meet and missionaries and church planters that we will never meet uh, by giving to this offering. You can do so online. There's also uh, Annie Armstrong specific Easter em offering envelopes at the information desk. You could grab one of those. Every penny that you give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering uh, goes directly to planting gospel preaching churches in North America. And so we join together with all of our other, with all of the other churches uh, that are in our convention to do things like this, things that we could not do uh, on our own. So we're grateful for the work of the North American Mission Board. I'll enjoy, I invite you to join with me in praying uh, for them this week. I'll ask you now to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We will look at the first 22 verses of this chapter together, really continuing in Paul's uh, theme here in chapters 8, 9, and 10 of fleeing from idolatry. And that's the title of our sermon today is Flee from Idolatry. I'll ask you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. So I read these 22 verses for us this morning. This is the word of the Lord. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is, not a particip- is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What did I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifices they offered to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the gathered body of Christ here at Nansman River Baptist Church, unified as this text says, as, as one loaf <laughs> together that you have brought from varying walks of life and just the, the great diversity that we have as one, one in the gospel of Jesus. As we turn to your word today, we pray, God, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us because we need your help, because our flesh is given towards idolatry. Our flesh is prone to wander. Our flesh is prone to to sit at the table of demons. But by your power and your grace, we are partakers in the body and blood of Jesus, our Lord. So would you instruct our hearts correct our actions, change our minds, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Over these last several weeks in this really middle section of, the first, uh, of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, we have looked time and again at the subject of idolatry. In chapter 8, Paul made a relational argument to avoid idolatry for the sake of weaker brothers and sisters who may be gathered in the church there at Corinth. That, that by participating in uh, festivals or meals or banquets that were hosted in pagan temples, they may cause other less mature Christians who had come out of that lifestyle to fall back into it. So Paul's first argument was really one of relational reasons to avoid idolatry. 
Then in the last couple of weeks in chapter 9, we, we looked at Paul giving a, a treatise of his own life and, and calling the, the church at Corinth to follow in his example of sacrifice of numerous freedoms because they were seeking to exercise their, their freedom. And, and Paul says the gospel is worth you sacrificing your freedom and as we saw last week, a call to diligence in disciple-making, in our own discipleship as we contribute to the disciple-making of others, that we must run as one who is running a race and seeking the prize that is Christ. But all of this concerning the, the subject at hand, which was idolatry in the midst of their culture and in some ways in the midst of the people of this church. I got a lot of feedback after last week's sermon. It seems several of you, many of you maybe, enjoyed that sermon. It was a very practical sermon. And sometimes the text lends itself to very practical sermons. And I think we kind of lean into those because it gives us something to really kind of hold on to. Much of today's sermon is not going to be that way. Because the text doesn't, it will end that way, but it won't begin that way. Because the text doesn't lend itself so much to practical application because this is not a practical argument for the most part in these verses that Paul is making. It is overtly a theological argument. This is Paul's theological argument for avoiding idolatry. Now, next week, this chapter will conclude with his most practical argument, and we will consider that next week. But for today, here's what I want us to see very simply that Christians must flee from every form of idolatry. That's as simple as I can make a main idea of a sermon. And, and there, there, there's one whole argument that Paul's going to make, that our understanding of the Scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, our understandings of the Scriptures, and what the Scriptures teach us about our theology of God, our understanding of God, and how we relate to Him, demands that we flee from every form of idolatry, that we do not find ourselves associated in any way with an idolatrous world and idol worship. There is really only one imperative in these verses. There's more than one command, but the other commands are more like cons telling us to consider certain things. There's only one that's actually telling us to do something in all 22 of these verses. And it's verse 14. It's kind of in the middle. And so let's start in the middle. Then we'll see the argument that precedes it and see the argument that follows it and see how the whole scripture really speaks to this idea of the Christian need to flee from idolatry. In verse 14, Paul says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He's already previously in his letter to the church at Corinth instructed them to flee from sexual immorality. And we must understand the connection between sexual immorality and idolatry as it will appear uh, it, later in, in these verses that that idolatry and sexual immorality were, were closely connected in the pagan world of Rome, particularly in cultural centers like Corinth where people would come to worship false gods. There, there was much sexual immorality that was woven into that worship. 
And so earlier he tells them to flee sexual immorality, and here he tells them to flee idolatry. That You don't need an explanation of what the word flee means. It means to run away from. If, if, you know, if there was a, a wild bear in here, I, you would flee. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be difficult for you to, to understand. You're not going to, now maybe there's a crazy person in here and like, I'm going to go pet the bear. But most of us, most of us would, would run away. That, that's what we would do. We would, we would run away. And this is, this is the imperative that Paul gives to the church. Run away from idolatry. Just as he has said, run away from sexual immorality. Why? Because as we get closer and closer to sins like sexual immorality and, adult, and, and idolatry, we end up giving ourselves over to them. Th- these aren't sins that you can get close to and, and not, not get caught up in. And so he, he gives this clear instruction, flee from idolatry. Now, I'm going to give the theological treatise that he gives in these two sections two primary sections, and then we're going to come back to verse 14 at the end of our time. So let's look, our first main point here, the Old Testament's warning concerning idolatry, where Paul begins here in verses uh, really 2 through uh, two through 17, or sorry, 2 through uh, 13, is he gives the instruction, he gives the example of the Old Testament and the people of God in the Old Testament and how they serve clearly as an example and a warning to flee from idolatry. Look with me in the first six verses. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place in his example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. I need to first address what Paul says in the first verse, where he tells them, do not be unaware about our fathers. I don't want you to be, the word unaware really is the word ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant. Now, ignorant's not a... It's not an insult. There are things in life we're all ignorant on. And here's the assumption maybe that that Paul is making. I think it's a good assumption that he's writing to a primarily Gentile audience. And he's going to write about some of the detailed things that happened during the Exodus. And maybe they don't know about some of those things. Because they weren't raised as Paul was. Paul was raised as a As a Jew, he was raised in a Hebrew community. He would have known in detail, and he's going to explain it to them, all of these things. And while they may have been communicated to the New Testament Gentile church, there there would have been some level of ignorance, particularly compared to people like the Apostle Paul, who would have had great knowledge of these things. He says, I do not want you to be aware, but notice what he says. He calls the, the, the people of the Exodus... Our fathers, he doesn't say my father, talking about himself as a Jewish person, looking at the Old Testament people of God and saying they're they're his fathers. He's calling them the fathers of the church. And then in verse six, 
He says, now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So where we have to begin for this argument to really make sense to us is we have to ask at least on a surface level, why is it that the Apostle Paul would address Gentile Christians and talk to them about Old Testament people, Old Testament events that happened long before and call those people their fathers and say that those events took place as an example for the church. Well, we have to understand who the church really is. The book of Galatians that Paul writes, it's another letter that the apostle Paul writes, really helps us with this. Paul plants the gospel and plants a church in Galatia and has to leave relatively quickly. And not long after he had left at all, he receives word that this church had been integrated by what was known as Judaizers, as those who would say, if you're really going to follow Christ, you also have to follow the Old Testament law. They were insisting that they follow uh, circumcision and the Sabbaths, and they were keeping things that under the new covenant were not necessary. And in maybe the most aggressive letter of the entire New Testament, Paul writes to correct their theology. And in two places, he writes things that help us with our understanding here. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, he says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So he writes again to Gentile, primarily Gentile audience, in another Roman region church and says... You are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to the promise because you are in Christ and Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise. That all of the promises that God made to Old Testament Israel find their yes in Christ and you then are an inheritor of that promise. You are spiritual offspring of Abraham. In his last chapter, in the last chapter of that same letter, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul viewed the, spirit, the church, the, the spiritual people of God, both Jew and Gentile, those who were in Christ, as the Israel of God. What does that mean? It means that there are one people of God. The true Israel are those who believed in the promise of God before Jesus and were obedient unto their faith in Christ and those who after Jesus have been saved by looking back on the work of Christ and are obedient to that work of the gospel in their lives. And so he is able to look back on the fathers of Exodus and say, these are your fathers. These are your stories. Hear me, church. The Old Testament is Christian scripture. It is for us. We shouldn't just be people who say, well, we're New Testament people. We are New, we are new Covenant people, but we're not just New Testament people. We are biblical people under a new covenant where God has brought Gentiles, those nations of the world into his covenant, making a spiritual Israel, meaning this whole story is for us. And they serve as an example for us. So pick up in verse two. 
He says, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud of the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, Paul uses some language here that he's going to use later, and that should kind of be New Testament language to us, because he talks first about baptism. Right? They were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized in Moses in the cloud and the sea. And so he looks at the, the pillar of cloud that, that went before the people in the Exodus and their journey into the Red Sea kind of as, as a picture of baptism. And then he talks about they all ate the same spiritual food. This was the manna that came from heaven and they all drank from the spiritual rock. And I'll talk about the spiritual rock here in just a moment. But this was water, miraculous water that God had provided for people. So they had miraculous food, miraculous drink. So not only were they kind of baptized in the cloud and the sea, but they all participated in a, in a special meal. Now, we're, we're, if you hadn't already figured out, we're observing the Lord's Supper for a reason this morning. Because we participate in a special meal. And, and he's writing this so that they'll make that connection. So that they'll see that these things were written for, for their example. And nevertheless, most of them God was not pleased with and overthrew them in the wilderness. Why? Why, why did God overthrow them in the wilderness? Even though they were baptized and even though they ate the manna and they drank from the rock, why, were, why was God not pleased with them? God was not pleased with them because they were disobedient in the wilderness. So who were they disobedient to? They were disobedient to Christ. Think about what he's saying in verse 4 when he, when he, says, that, when he says that you drank from the rock that is, that is Christ, the rock. And you'll notice it's likely capitalized in your English translation because in the Old Testament, rock very often represented God himself. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a metaphor for God that is often capitalized. We think about it in, in a... In a uh, very specific sense, talking about God, Paul connects it to Jesus. Paul says in Exodus 17, at the beginning of the Exodus, when Moses was instructed to strike the rock and water flowed miraculously for the people, and at the end of the wilderness wandering in Numbers 20, when Moses was instructed to speak to the rock so that water would flow, even though he didn't, water would flow miraculously for the people. Paul's looking back on that event and saying, that is Jesus providing for his people. Now, for those of you that come to equip, if you've been through my cycle so far in this equip cycle, if you've been through my class on biblical theology, this should make sense to you because what we've been talking about is finding Jesus in, in, in these themes of the scripture. And Paul's doing good biblical theology for us. He's looking back in the Old Testament and he's seeing Jesus. He's saying Jesus was the rock at the beginning of the Exodus and at the end of the wandering that provided for the people. And yet, even though Jesus, the rock, is in their midst, many of them were disobedient to him and overthrown in the wilderness. And then what Paul does for us in verses 7 through 10 is he gives us a picture of these details. Even though they ate the spiritual food and even though they drank the spiritual drink, many of them were not spiritual people. They didn't have faith. They didn't trust in the promise of God. They grumbled and complained and became idolaters. Look at verses 7 through 10. First, verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. 
as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's just, we're going to take these one verse at a time. Verse 7 is, he's citing Exodus 30 to 6. In Exodus 30, I'm not going to read all of these, so they're not in your notes, but maybe you just want to make a quick note of them, all of the places, and you can go back and read these stories, because most of them are an entire chapter long, and I only have so many minutes. So Exodus 32 is the story of the golden calf. It's Moses is up on Sinai receiving the law from God, and the people grow anxious, and they think Moses is dead, and so they turn to Aaron and say, we need something to worship, and Aaron collects all the gold from the people, makes a golden calf, and they worship. And in Exodus 32, 6, we read, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, meaning the people participated in a special meal, and when he says they rose up to play, that is an idiom for they practice sexual immorality. That's what was happening in that day. Following the spiritual food and drink at the beginning of the Exodus, manna from heaven, miraculous water from Christ the rock, they now eat and drink in a pagan ritual. They're eating and drinking. Not to the God that led them out of Egypt, but to a God that they have created with their own hands, a false God. They have become idolaters there at the base of Sinai. Now look at eight. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Paul is referencing here an event that takes place at the end of the wilderness wandering. He jumps ahead 40 years to Numbers 25, where the people are in Moab, they're on the other side of the Dead Sea. They're about to, they're, they're weeks away from crossing into the, to the promised land across the Jordan River. And as they're spending some time there in Moab, the people commit sexual immorality with Moabite women. And in the very next verse of Numbers 25, where it tells us that they engage in sexual immorality with Moabite women, it also tells us that they then began to worship those same gods that those Moabite women worshiped. And God sent a plague on the people. And 23,000 fell in a single day. The last plague before God instructs Moses to take a census of the people. This was the last event of that unfaithful generation that was cursed with wilderness wandering. So what do we see at the beginning and the end? We see idolatry in the people's hearts and the Lord judging them. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test. Remember, Christ is the right. Christ is with them in the wilderness. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Verse 9, they're grumbling against the food that God has provided. They're, again, in the wilderness. They're, they're grumbling about the manna. And they're saying we have nothing to drink. All of this is connected to eating and drinking. You notice. And, and they're grumbling about this. And so God sends fiery serpents amongst their midst and begins to kill many of them. Ultimately telling Moses to make a bronze serpent, erect it in the center of the people. The bronze servant is Jesus, by the way. And that they could look on it and be healed. But they were grumbling. And God sent serpents in, in their midst. Then verse 10, verse 10 really is a summary verse for us. He says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Th this isn't referencing any specific event during the time of the Exodus. It's representing the wilderness wandering as a whole. 
Because the destroyer is the death angel from the final Egyptian plague who killed all of the firstborn who had not participated in the Passover meal the night before, had not followed the instructions of God. But Paul says they ultimately all failed. That entire generation were destroyed by the destroyer. They were all caught up. This entire, entire faithless generation failed to enter the promised land and was caught up by one plague or another by the destroyer because they were disobedient to God. And after giving all of these examples, all of these Old Testament examples, particularly uh, Exodus examples, he says, writes this in verses 11 through 13, now these things happened to them as an example. This is the second time he's saying, these were an example for you. So in case you missed it the first time, these things are intended to be an example for New Testament Christians. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age, ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So Paul lays out this theological to practical argument here in these three verses. First, this happened as an example for you, for us who are now at the end of the age. You say, Paul was writing that 2,000 years ago. How are they at the end of the age? Because Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, after Jesus' death, burial, and ascent, resurrection, and ascent to heaven, marks the end of the age. We have been in the end of the age for 2,000 years. So anytime you read end of the age in, in the New Testament, you need to think now and then. Because that was clearly the way he sees this. That's on whom the end of the ages has come. This is the way, this is the posture that the church is supposed to live in. For instance, in Romans 13, 11, Paul writes, Beside this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is near to us now than when we first believed. When Christ came, the kingdom of God dawned, and in Christ, salvation for the nations is now here and the apostle connects the first exodus of God's people with all those examples of their idolatry to God's people here at the end of the age who are God's spiritual people in Christ. But he warns us in verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. This reminds me of Proverbs 16, 18 that said, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. When we think we can get really close to idolatry, idolatry burns us. Just as we think we can get really close to sexual immorality, sexual immorality burns us. And so he's, he, he writes to these people, say, so you're at the end of the age, but don't think you're better than those people back in Exodus. I think this is important. Don't think you're better than that generation that the destroyer destroyed in the, in the wilderness. Don't think you're better than the people that grumbled over eating the manna and drinking the miraculous water. Don't think you're better than them because the minute you think you're better than them, you too are going to fall in the same way that they fell. If your avoidance of idolatry rests on your own ability, hear me church, you will fail. Every time. 
Let him take heed lest he fall. But there's an answer to this. There's an answer. No temptation has overtaken you except that what is common to man. And God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What's Paul's answer? Don't try to do this on your own. Trust that God will help you. And I think, at least in some way, verse 13, maybe Paul's anticipation of the Corinthian objection. That because idolatry was so integrated into their society, many of them likely felt hopeless in their attempt to flee from it. Just as, just as in ancient Israel, idolatry was integrated so much into their society. It was everywhere that they turned from Egypt to the wilderness and even into the promised land itself. And Paul says, look, this temptation is common to man, meaning everybody experiences this temptation, but nobody gets to look at it and say, I can't overcome this. You're right, you can't overcome it, but God provides a way for us to overcome it. This week in our house, we were talking about Psalm 23, and it reminds me of what the psalmist writes about our good shepherd who restores our soul and leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see, the simplest answer for how we avoid idolatry is we walk in paths of righteousness laid out for us by Christ and his word. That's the simple answer for how do we flee. When I started in verse 14 and said, flee idolatry, maybe you thought, pastor, you don't know how hard it is for me. I may not, but hear me, God does, and he has provided a path for you. You can walk in the righteous paths that are established by our good shepherd, by Christ our Lord, and instructed to us in his word. And you don't get to look and say, well, it's just so difficult for me and the generation that I'm raised in and the culture that I'm raised in. I'm going to have to have a little bit of idolatry, right? Nope. You don't have to have any. You can flee from it, and Christ provides the means for you to flee. Number two, the new covenant's incompatibility with idolatry. So we see the Old Testament example. Now we're under the new covenant of Christ, and the new covenant of Christ is incompatible with a lifestyle of idolatry. Pick up in verse 15. I speak as, sens as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now Paul turns in his theological treatment away from the Old Testament and towards the Lord's Supper, towards the Lord's table, communion that the, the church observes together. He gives a full treatment of this topic in chapter 11, which we will actually consider after Easter because we're going to jump to 15 for a couple of weeks surrounding Easter. But here's what we need to understand here from chapter 10. The cup and the bread of the Lord's table represent our participation in Christ. Notice what he says. The cup of the blessing we bless, is it not a participation in the blood? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body? This would have been a perfect time, by the way, for Paul to say that the bread and the wine literally become the body and blood of Jesus, but he didn't. He said that they, that they are our participation in it. The elements of the Lord's table 
are not physically Christ. They represent our participation in the covenant of Jesus that is established by his broken body and spilled blood. So think back to that, to all this idolatry in Exodus and how much of it surrounded food and drink. Now join me in the new covenant and hear what I have to say. Church family, we have a meal. We have bread and we have wine. We don't use alcoholic wine, but that's what it is, okay? We, We have bread and a cup. And we don't need to go to, put yourself in the position of these people in Corinth. They were tempted to go into the temples and eat bread and drink from a cup that was intended for an idol. We have a meal. It sits before us. And, it, and at the meal, we worship Christ. When we come to the table, it is an act of worship to the rock of the Old Testament. It is an act of worship to the Christ who has saved us. And we are, verse 17, unified together in the gospel of Jesus. In the midst of our diversity, we partake together as an act of worship in the body and blood of Jesus. We participate in it. But he warns them again in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. When he says, your Bible may say, consider uh, Israel according to the flesh. He, he's, not, he's not referring to spiritual Israel here. He's referring to the disobedient Israel. Very likely the disobedient Israel in Exodus 32 with the golden calf and rising up to eat and drink. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? He's meaning when they rose up to eat and drink, they were participating in the altar of a false, a false God. What do I imply then? He's going to answer his question. He's going to lay it out clearly for us. That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything. No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he participate in idolatry, hear me, Let's worship demons. Yeah, these idols are just made of wood and of stone, of precious metals. There's nothing to them, right? No. They represent the deception of the people. Before Moses goes to his death, not allowed to enter the promised land because he disobeyed God instead of speaking to the rock, striking that last one. Moses delivers some final speeches to the people. This is basically the entirety of the book of Deuteronomy, our parting speeches from Moses to the people. And in in Deuteronomy 32, Moses says, the Jeshurun, Jeshurun, by the way, means upright one. It, It was a nickname for Israel that Moses was using sarcastically, okay? But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked and grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Notice rock there again. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations that provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to gods, to new gods that had come recently when your fathers have 
had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Here he's warning ethnic Israel that they didn't participate in the promise of God because they were not obedient to God, but they worshiped false gods. And here's what we need to understand, and I understand that we live We live in a post-enlightenment society. For me to stand up here and talk about demons, some of you, your eyes kind of roll back. Like, is he, that, that's a, this spiritual world stuff, we really going to talk about the spiritual world stuff? Listen to me. Absolutely, we're going to talk about the spiritual world stuff. It's in the text. It's both in Deuteronomy 32, and it's right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Make no mistake, to participate in idolatry is to worship demons. If to participate in the Lord's table is to worship Christ, then to participate at some other God's table, who is a false God, is ultimately to worship demons. Church, there is no neutrality. Pagan worship is demon worship. Shall I say it again? Pagan worship is demon worship, meaning this. Every other religion or philosophy without the true Christ at its center is a lie and from the father of lies and therefore is the worshiping of demons. So yes, we are exclusive people in our claim to worship the one true and living God. Because if your claim to worship God does not have Christ at its center or you don't claim any kind of religion at all but some sort of secular humanism philosophy. If Christ isn't the center, then demons are the center. Every other form of worship is demonic worship, Paul says, outside of worshiping the one true Christ who broke his body and spilled his blood, establishing a new covenant that all who come to him in faith might be saved. We cannot have a seat at both tables. Nobody likes going to the same restaurant over and over and over and over and over again. Maybe you do. Maybe you're a creature of habit. I do. They got a seat for me at La Perea. I mean it. I mean, I, I get one of three things. I just kind of rotate through it. Brian and Jay and I go to lunch once a week. They're tired of eating La Perea. Not me. I'm going to keep going. Love Mexican food. I'm having a meeting with some prospective church members tomorrow at La Perea. But eventually the same thing kind of gets old, right? And so so we were like, well, let's go try something else. Let's go. Jay's the one that's always doing this. Let's go, let's go try something else. I heard of this new restaurant. He's always taking us to some strange place. Sometimes it's good. We're that same way in our spiritual life. Sometimes we kind of think, man, this Christian stuff, this is great. I believe in this. But, but this, you know, we got a lot to learn from the secular world. We got a lot to learn from the, from the Eastern mysticism world. There's even some things that we could learn from other religions of the, of the Near and Middle East, right? No. They're all participation at the table of demons. You can't sit at both. We're going to come to the table in a few minutes. But before we do this, we have to understand that if we're reserving this seat, we're reserving this seat alone. That to participate at the table of Christ is an exclusive claim that Jesus alone gives us access to the one true living God of heaven. So what? 
right? Participation in the Lord's table serves as a sign of our exclusive devotion to Christ and rejection of idolatry. Go back to the imperative of 1 Corinthians 10, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Before we come to the table, I need to give you this imperative. Church, family, have you fled from idolatry? Are there ways in your life that you're dabbling in some of these other mystic things or some of these other uh, secular practices or some of these you know, other philosophies that are contrary to Christ? If so, my challenge to you today is flee from idolatry person who's never turned to Jesus. This is a command for you too, by the way. It is an initial command for you to flee from idolatry, flee from idolatrous ways of worshiping yourself and turn towards Jesus and run towards him. For in him, we find goodness and grace and forgiveness of all of our sin. And these are questions that we must ask ourselves before we participate. Again, a much more complete picture of this when we get to 1 Corinthians 11, but let's just consider two verses quickly. Verse 27 and 28, Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Meaning this, if you come to the table in an unworthy manner, it's sin. That's what it means to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Paul says to come to the table while keeping a seat at a demon's table is sin. So then, let a person examine himself and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So as we come today to observe the Lord's table, to participate in the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus, church family, we need to take just a moment, just a moment, to examine ourselves and to ask this question, am I participating at the table of demons or am I fully and completely wholeheartedly committed to Christ and my participation in him and his gospel alone. As I pray, I'm going to invite our worship team and our men who are going to be serving us to come forward. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you first for the the rock that is Christ who provides immeasurably for our salvation through his broken body and spilled blood. We thank you for the examples that have gone before us, both Old Testament examples of faithful spiritual Israel and the corrective examples of, of those who were unfaithful. And for the generations before us who have carried the gospel, who have turned their backs on the world, who have rejected the philosophies of man, who have, who have refused to sit at the table of demons and have passed to us the gospel of Jesus once and for all delivered to the saints of God. Cleanse our hearts, we pray. Help us to not seek to straddle in this world between sin and righteousness, but keep us on the paths of righteousness. Church family, now, if there's sin in your life, would you confess it to God? If there are idols in this world that are, that, that the temptation has been too much to you, will you confess it to God? If there are ways that you have been unworthy in your obedience, the table of Christ, will you confess that to God? Fathers, we now come as one bread to receive your the, the meal of your table, 
we do so with humble hearts, not with pride, but recognizing that it is by Christ alone that we participate in this meal, the one holy meal. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Before our guys come to serve, let me just take a moment to fence the table. Who is welcome at the table of Christ? Well, at Nansman River, you do not have to be a member of our church to participate in the Lord's table. I understand why some churches do that. We don't require that rule. Here's what we would require, and, and I, would, I, I, I speak this as forcefully as I can. If you have not ever made a public profession of faith in Jesus, this meal is not for you. If you have, and you have then in this previous moment confessed in your heart sin, then you can receive the Lord's table in a worthy manner. Not that you are completely positionally free from sin, but in the eyes of God you are because of Christ. Christ has made you free. And so all who have publicly professed faith in Christ, members or not of our church, are welcome to receive the Lord's table. Parents, it's not a time to give in to your children. It is a time to instruct them of what does it mean to look towards Christ one day in their lives. So we will be, we'll distribute the elements of the Lord's table, invite you to hold on to them, and then we will receive them uh, together. Gentlemen, if you'll come forward to serve.